a lot about miracles this time of year. We sing of them. We even watch them. So many of us are familiar with films like Miracle on 34th Street or perhaps It's a Wonderful Life. Right? We even pray for miracles like vaccines to be developed and distributed or for COVID relief bills to come or for Brexit deals to be made or even, yes, on the eve of Christmas, last-minute presents that haven't yet arrived. Not that I ever leave my shopping to last minute. Right? We know some things are beyond us. Right? Some things are truly outside of our control. And I'm not just talking about the U.S. Postal Service. I wonder, what would you say is the greatest of all miracles? And I'm not talking about the visage of the Mother Mary in a grilled cheese sandwich. Though some of you may know a number of years ago, a woman perhaps discovered just such a thing and sold her 10-year-old sandwich for $28,000. Now that is either truly miraculous or ridiculous, and I'll leave you to be the judge. Right? But what, what miracle stands above all others? What dwarfs all others? What eclipses all others? I wonder how you'd answer that question tonight. If you're a skeptic, you may mock the very idea of miracles, at least in the formal sense of the word, as if God sort of supernaturally works and intervenes in the world. But if you're a Christian, perhaps you might say the greatest miracle is the miracle of the resurrection. Friend, I would suggest to you that the greatest miracle our world has ever witnessed was in that prophecy we read earlier from Isaiah 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It's what we read earlier in Matthew 1.20 in the service here when the angel says to Joseph, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's what we sang just in that last song, the second stanza of Hark, the Herald Angels Sing, a, a song truly pregnant, right, with Christmas meaning. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Friends, the greatest miracle the Christmas miracle that we've come to celebrate tonight, it's not about stockings, it's not about Saint Nick, it's that God became man. The staggering claim of Christmas is that the second member of the Godhead took upon flesh and became like us. It's that thundering deity became part of our helpless humanity. It's that the one who created the world awoke, right, staring, wriggling, cooing into that very world that he created. Puritan Thomas Goodwin would say that when the sun became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed. This is God's greatest wonder. And there is not a miracle more glorious and one more marvelous than this, that God became Man, 
And so I just want us to think about the incarnation for a few minutes this evening and observe just two things that we've been reading about and that we've already sung about. First, this miracle of the incarnation, it's for the lowly. That's what I first want to say. It's for the lowly and it's also, secondly, for life. It's for life. But it is, first, it's for the lowly. Or for whom did Christ appear to? Who did he come and who did he make his presence known to it? It wasn't to the Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar, Caesar rather, uh, Caesar Augustus. It wasn't to him. It was not even to Herod. He didn't even come to the daughter of a, of a great high priest. No. The reformer Martin Luther, he noted, he said, you know, God might have well have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' daughter, who was fair and rich and clad in gold and embroidered raiment and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. In other words, a very common town. A town that would get no notice, no attention. God could not in Mary have picked a more unlikely soul. Mary was not powerful. Mary was not wealthy. She was not of the elite. She was young. She was poor, perhaps uneducated. And she was a peasant woman in a culture that discounted women. And from a country town at that, one that was barely on the map, right in the fringes of the empire. In short, Mary was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And yet that's whom God appeared to. Because God's grace is for the lowly. It comes to the lowly. So when the angel appears to Mary and says to her, Greetings, O favored one. That word for favor is the same word where we get our word grace. In other words, lowly Mary is the graced one. The one who has been shown grace. The one who has received grace. She is not full of grace, as many mistakenly pray. She is the one who has received grace. A recipient of it. Not the repository of it for others. Because the incarnation is for the lowly. It's why Jesus' birth would not be heralded by Herod. It would not be heralded on the hills of Rome. No, but by lowly and despised shepherds in the darkness of night. The incarnation is meant to teach us, to help us see, every one of us, that we are lowly. That is to say, every one of us, we're in need. We can't fix our condition. We can't reverse the world's curse. We cannot save ourselves. No, it must come from somewhere else. It must come outside of us. God must take the initiative. He must come and grace us. He must intervene and that intervention, God becoming man, that incarnation is exactly as what God did for our salvation. Which is why, secondly, I want us to see that this miracle, it's not just for the lowly, it is for life, most fundamentally. It is for life. See, the incarnation, don't be mistaken, it's not just a cute story. It is the central fact of history, and it is the great confession of our own Christian hope. If, if you remember Paul in 1 Timothy 3, 
when he talks about our great confession. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness that he was manifested in the flesh. How did that happen? Well, we read that the virgin conceived through, right, by means of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' birth was evidently, obviously, to those who knew the story, to those who read of the story, it was a supernatural birth. Jesus had no earthly father like you and I do. For if he had been born like us, he would suffer from sin like us. And not only in that case would Jesus be unable to save us. No, Jesus himself would have needed a savior. But Jesus was born of God, right? The son being the sinless lamb of God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was fully God. And yet born of Mary, Jesus was fully man. So he had a body like ours. He sweat like us. He hungered like us. He wept like us. He suffered like us. He died in many respects like us. His conception by the Spirit, yeah, that's what secured his deity. But his birth right by Mary is what secured his humanity. So one person, two natures. And it's right there that we find the stumbling block to Christianity. The scandal, even of Christmas, if you will, is the incarnation. You know, we so often think it's the crucifixion. That's the real scandal of Christianity or the resurrection. But it's right here at this point, the incarnation, the true Christmas story. Because behind all the lights, behind all the gifts, stockings and eggnog lie this truth. That God gloriously and inexplicably became man. You know, that's what my Unitarian upbringing, that's what we refuse to accept. It's what Jews It's what Muslims, it's what Jehovah's Witnesses cannot accept. That God became man in Jesus Christ. It's why skeptics like the the retired Episcopal bishop, John Shelby Spong, he says, as he refers to the virgin birth, he refers to it as the entrance myth to Christianity. That's what the virgin birth is. To him, it's the entrance myth to Christianity. Because think about it for just a moment. If this miracle of the virgin birth, of the incarnation, if it is true, if it's true, it paves the way for everything that follows in the Gospels. If it's true, everything else we read and we observe and hear and hear declared about Jesus is true. Because if the incarnation is true, it's not hard at all to understand how Jesus, the God-man, can what? He can heal the sick. He can give sight to the blind. He can unstop the ear of the deaf. If the incarnation is true, the resurrection is not a leap of faith. No, the resurrection is perfectly logical if the incarnation is true. But if it's not true, right, without the virgin birth, without the incarnation, well, Jesus is not God. There is no sinless substitute to die in our place. There is not one who has come to reverse our curse. There is no communion between God and man. There is no salvation for God 
and man between us. There is no gospel. There is no hope. There is no life if you don't have the virgin birth, God and man in one in the incarnation. It's why our entire Christian hope, right, a whole Christmas hope, I pray, as we gather, hinges upon this simple fact that God became man. That the sinless son had a human body and as he had a human body, thus he could offer up that human body on the cross for us. That the son had a resurrection body so that he might become the first fruits, right? The prototype for our own resurrection bodies. In the incarnation, right? In the God-man, we see Christ's compassion for his people. And we see Christ as the satisfaction for his people. Compassion and satisfaction wrapped into one gift in the incarnation. Friends, that is the hope of Christmas. That's what we cannot miss. That's what we cannot pass by. That the Son of God became man so that men might one day become true sons of God. Which is why if you, if you come tonight and you're hearing this and you're reflecting upon your own life and you're, you're feeling perhaps somewhat lost, perhaps discouraged and confused, why life has not worked out as you had hoped, why it's not delivering as you expected it to deliver, it may simply be because you have not understood the true meaning of Christmas. Because God did not unite his deity to technology. Which is why phones and physicians, right, however marvelous they may be, they can't finally save you. He did not unite his deity to all of humanity. Right? We're not all gods in waiting. Which means there is no spouse, there is no friend who can complete you, finally fulfill you, and save you. He did not unite his deity to reason, which is why education can't save you. He did not unite his deity to sports, to politics, to law, right? He didn't do it to any one of those things. No, he, his deity was gloriously united in a person, a singular person, right? The person of Jesus Christ who came, as we read, to want to save his people from their sins, to become like one of them, and to suffer for them, and to die for them. In him alone, in this Jesus can you find true salvation from God, from the wrath of God against sin and true communion with God? Both of those, salvation from sin, communion with God, both of those are found in Jesus Christ, the God-man. Friends, that's what the incarnation is all about. It is a glorious mystery. It is beyond our comprehension, right? Eternity in time, immensity, in space, infinity, in the finite, immutability, in change, being, in becoming. Right? Think that the, the one who would feed from his mother's breast provided his mother with the very milk to feed him. That's what we celebrate as God becomes man in Christ. Such things cannot be fully comprehended by us, 
but they can be adored by us. Do you adore this Jesus, the incarnate one? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise. We give you praise that you have condescended in your own kindness and in your grace to send us your son. That he exchanged those sapphire paved courts as we sung about earlier for stable floor. That he came in meekness and in humility. Oh God, we want to exalt ourselves. We want to be great. He came and trusted you to exalt him. And you to make him great. God, we give you praise that we can look to him and know that if we see ourselves as the lowly and see ourselves in need, that we can know in this Jesus is light and life to men. And we give you praise for him. In Christ's name, amen.